Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. G'day everyone, and welcome to episode two of the Battle of Mariang San. Don't forget to check out our website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on Facebook and Instagram, or drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. And don't forget to drop us a review on iTunes. So, same as last time, I'd encourage you to head over to the website before continuing this episode to check out the map, just to reorient yourself as to how everything sits. But before we get started, James O'Callaghan sent me a message on the website, and somehow responding via the site seems to be beyond my meagre capabilities. So James, thanks for getting in touch. I've added the link to part one of the RAN in World War I page on the website. Uh, It would appear I didn't know how to do it at the time. See how you go with that, and if you'd like a bit more, just let me know. And thanks for your episode suggestions. Fair dinkum, I'm going to figure out technology one day. And opinion is pretty evenly divided on the big reveal that I mentioned last episode. So I reckon I'll split the difference and let you know before the end of the year, but not today. Well, I've got to keep you in suspense somehow, don't I? By way of a quick recap of the previous episode, during the first phase of the Battle of Mariang San, Commando 1, the 28th Commonwealth Brigade, with the 25th Canadian Brigade on their left, assaulted the key features to the west of the Imjin River. The King's own Scottish borderers and the King's Shropshire Light Infantry, after a tough couple of days, managed to seize Hill 355 and Hill 227. The diggers from C Company 3 RAR had played a significant role in the capture of Hill 355, but were then pulled back to the main battalion area for their part in the second phase. The Chinese forces, which had been defending the features, had suffered heavy casualties, but those who had survived fell back to Hill 317 and its supporting features of Hill 217 and the Hinge. There was now a formidable force facing the Australians and the men of the Royal Northumberland Fusiliers who would be joining them for this part of the battle. The basics of the plan was that three RAR would assault the main feature, being Hill 317, and the Fusiliers would attack the smaller feature of Hill 217 to the south, and having seized that hill, to advance along the spur line and meet up with three RAR at the hinge. While the Borderers and Shropshires settled into their newly won positions, three RAR and the Fusiliers, during the night of the 4th and 5th of October, moved to their assembly areas. The Fusiliers moved in behind Hill 355 and 3RAR moved onto Hill 199. Also throughout the night, the divisional artillery continued to lay down a heavy fire onto the objectives and their approach routes. Once the attacks had commenced, the artillery would then redirect their fire to the reverse slopes of Hill 317 to interdict supply and reinforcements, effectively isolating the Chinese defenders. Lieutenant Colonel Hassett, officer commanding 3RAR, planned a two-company advance along the northern ridge to clear the forward positions known as Victor, Uniform and Tango. Now would be a good time to boldly go forth to the website to check out the map of this particular area, 
which will show exactly where these key positions are in the overall scheme of things. The main advance would be conducted by B Company under Captain Henry Nichols and D Company under Major Jack Hardiman. As these two companies advanced, A Company, along with some tanks, would advance to the south in a diversionary attack and to provide security. C Company, fresh from assisting the borderers to take Hill 355 on the 4th of October, would move towards Battalion Headquarters on Hill 199 during the night of the 4th and 5th of October and they would form the Battalion Reserve. But before the assaulting companies could commence their move along the spur line, they had to get to the spur line first. There was no moon at 0330, that's 3.30am, or for the RAAF listeners, when Mickey's little hand is just past the 3 and his big hand is on the 6. With bayonets fixed, B Company moved through D Company and headed towards Quebec feature to the north of Hill 199. As with previous nighttime moves during Operation Commando, the pitch black darkness and heavy fog meant that the troops could only march in single file, holding on to the pack of the man in front. Progress was slow as the officers regularly had to try to reconcile their positions with little more than a compass and a map to ground reference of the immediate area. As per the plan, D Company moved out 30 minutes after B Company and Major Hardiman was concerned that the slow going was putting his company behind schedule. But there was nothing he could really do about that. Any attempt at rushing the move and the navigation could put his company in completely the wrong place. So he just had to have faith that his platoon commanders were doing their jobs. Which of course they did. By 8am, D Company crested the ridgeline at X-ray feature to find B Company in position and waiting for them. At least they hoped they were on X-ray. As Hardiman approached B Company headquarters, he heard Nichols on the radio to Hassett, advising that he wasn't sure of his position as the heavy fog obscured all landmarks. After a quick conference, the two company commanders decided that the best course of action was to move westward using compasses for navigation. Hardiman returned to his company and ordered Lieutenant Jim Young, an experienced artillery officer during World War II, and the company's best navigator, to lead the way. D Company headed west, but for reasons unknown to Hardiman, Nichols led B Company to the north. While these two companies were moving, the Royal Northumberland Fusiliers began their assault on Hill 217. Just as a wee point of interest, this unit had been in continuous existence since 1674 and had fought in every major and most minor conflicts that Britain had found itself in since that time. So we're talking the Peninsula War against Napoleon's Grand Armée, actions in India and Afghanistan, the Second South African War, 67 battle honours in the Great War, including Mons and the Marne, 29 battle honours in World War II, including Dunkirk, El Alamein and Casino, and now here they are in Korea. When Operation Commando kicked off, the Fusiliers were nearly due for rotation out of the country. They must have been a bit nervous about taking on the Chinese so close to their relief, but as their motto proclaims, whither the fates call. Maybe, as a way of reducing the risks they were taking, the greater part of the supporting artillery was allocated to be dumped on Hill 217. Their initial push went well, surprising the Chinese out of defences and taking a large number of prisoners. But the main defenders further up the hill had seen them by now and directed heavy machine gun fire towards them. Air attacks and artillery were poured onto the Chinese, but the narrow frontage made it difficult for the Fusiliers to move forwards. They were in for a tough fight. While they were doing their thing, B and D companies of 3RAR became separated in the fog. 
Nichols continued to head north and soon B Company crested a whisky feature where they encountered a Chinese position at around 9.15. They pushed forward, killing two enemy soldiers for the loss of one killed and another wounded. Not the best profit-loss ratio, but it did have the unintended advantage of securing the battalion's northern flank. Not that this was B Company's designated role in this attack. This now left Hassett with only one company to carry out the attack along the intended spur line. D Company moved down into a gully and approached Victor Feature. They were fired on at around 9.15, at the same time that B Company had captured Whiskey. Lieutenant Young, in the lead with 12 platoon, estimated that the position must be around 200 metres away. The fog was still limiting vision. Hardiman ordered Young to remain in place to provide fire support and then ordered Lieutenant Jeff Leary with 10 platoon and Lieutenant Lawrence Clark with 11 platoon to launch a flank attack. Unfortunately, due to the fog, Hardiman didn't know his exact location and couldn't call in fire support to assist with this movement. By 11am, they were about ready to move when the fog lifted. This was a good thing. Now they could see where they were and also where the Chinese were. And the Chinese weren't 200 yards away. They were about 60. As luck would have it though, the Chinese defences were oriented to the south and so there was a bit of a delay while they repositioned themselves to face this threat coming from the east. But they were able to bring rifle, machine gun and grenade fire onto D Company as they advanced. Hardiman made a quick adjustment to his plan and ordered 12 and 11 platoons on the right of the advance to provide covering fire while 10 platoon went forward on the left. Leary led his men against the Chinese position but was hit in the thigh although he continued to direct his platoon. They broke into the defences and fierce hand-to-hand fighting ensued. Corporal Vincent Brown had his own gun shot out of his hands, but he just picked up another one and kept on going. When Leary was evacuated, Brown took over the command of 10 platoon. At about the same time, Hardiman was also hit in the thigh by a machine gun burst. He tried to keep going, but blood loss stopped him. He remained in position until he confirmed that 10 platoon had completed their attack. He ordered an ammunition resupply and then allowed himself to be carried to the rear. Jim Young took command of the company and Sergeant Bill Rollinson took over command of 12 platoon. Young ordered 12 platoon to move forward to support 10 platoon in finalising the attack. By 11.40, 10 and 12 platoons had cleared Victor and the Chinese fell back towards Uniform, about 350 metres to the west. Hassett had, by this stage, moved his tactical headquarters to Quebec feature. From here, he and his artillery and machine gun section commanders could observe the Ford Company's movements. Young was able to raise HQ on the radio, and Hassett ordered him to place an air display panel on the ground at his current location. Citing the panel, Hassett was able to provide Young with an accurate grid reference for his company's position. Young set about organising his men on top of the Victor feature and sent a small patrol to make contact with B Company on Whiskey. In taking Victor, D Company killed 30 defenders, captured 10 and wounded a large number. For this, they had lost 2 killed and 15 wounded, including the company commander, Hardiman, and the platoon commander, Leary. Vince Brown was awarded the military medal for his part in the attack, and Bill Rowlandson received a bar to his Distinguished Conduct Medal. That was all well and good, but Victor was not Hill 317. The main point of this whole exercise still needed to be taken. Hassett asked Young whether D Company was in condition to continue the advance towards Uniform. Young, despite already taking one enemy position, replied that D Company was up for it. 
Give me 20 minutes heavy supporting fire and we'll have it, he told Hassett. Hassett later said that Young's response was a turning point in the battle. If Young had said D Company had done their bit and weren't able to continue, momentum would have been lost while Hassett brought another company forward. Hassett ordered B Company to begin moving forward from Whiskey and then set about organising Young's 20 minutes of heavy supporting fire. So while all that was going on, Captain Jim Shelton was taking A Company on a diversionary attack. A Company was secure a foothold on a spur running southeast from Hill 317. They would then push up this spur and force the Chinese defenders to assign some of their effort towards facing this threat, thereby reducing the amount of fire they could turn onto the main effort. That's kind of what a diversionary attack is all about, after all. They would be supported by armour, mortars and machine guns. A Company was chosen for this task, as Lieutenant Colonel Hassett had full faith in Shelton to do whatever needed doing, and Hassett could just leave him to it. Jim Shelton will appear in a later episode of this podcast, when we get to the Battle of Fire Support Base Balmoral, where Shelton led 3RAR. But for now, we're in Korea, and Shelton is a company commander. Shelton figured the best way of navigating his way towards Hill 317 was to stick to the ridge line that ran from Hill 199. This would make navigating easier, but narrow ridge lines are no good for movement of armour. Shelton decided that it was worth losing some coordination between the infantry and the tanks, and so the tankies advanced along the valley. They moved out at first light, with a thick fog blanketing the area, meaning the only means of keeping in touch with the tanks was by listening to the rumble through the mist. This was less than ideal for obvious reasons, but it did have an unforeseen advantage. If the Aussies on the ridge could hear the tanks, then so could the Chinese, and not having any visual intel to convince them otherwise, the Chinese assumed that down in the valley was the main attack. Fortunately for Shelton, a bit of good luck headed his way in the form of an old Duntroon mate of his, Jim Brown, who had been seconded to the 8th Hussars. Brown sought out his old mate in the hills and brought with him a radio set. Now A Company could maintain communication with the tanks, so things were looking up. A Company moved forward about 900 yards, only coming against light opposition from Chinese outposts. Two platoon, in the lead, easily took care of these posts, but the noise advertised to the main defence that there was in fact infantry heading their way, and so they began to bombard the area, wounding one soldier. Hassett ordered A Company to continue applying pressure to the Chinese front, and by 11.30 they had advanced to a position 1,000 yards from Hill 317. There was a small pimple 200 metres further along, and Hassett ordered Shelton to seize it. At 1.40pm, 1st Platoon under Lieutenant Freddie Gardner pushed forward and drew a lot of Chinese fire, losing five men wounded. Despite this, Hassett still needed Shelton to continue to pressure the Chinese to allow D Company to continue its advance, and so at 3.15, 3 Platoon under Lieutenant Michael Moore pushed on to another position 200 metres to the west. This push drew even more Chinese fire, but they successfully killed four enemy and captured another two. During this fighting, Sergeant Cecil Everly led his section against Chinese positions and while his section consolidated, Everly continued to pursue the Chinese. For his actions, he was awarded the military medal. Not quite done yet, Shelton struck out to the northwest with a platoon and killed three enemy and captured another position. As far as diversionary attacks go, you can't get much better than A Company's action during the fighting for Hill 317. They seized a number of Chinese positions, killed, wounded or captured a sizable number of the enemy and, as it was later discovered, had caused an entire Chinese company to face them, considerably easing the pressure on D Company and the main attack. Top effort to A Company. 
So now we jump back to D Company and Lieutenant Jim Young and his 20 minutes of fire support before making for uniform. Asset figured that 20 minutes probably wasn't enough, and so between 1200 and 1400, he poured artillery, mortars and machine guns onto three features between Tango and Victor, including uniform. The task of taking uniform was given to 11 platoon. They moved out at 2pm while the supporting fire was flying over their heads. They worked their way forward to within grenade range of the Chinese position and lobbed in their grenades before charging the last few yards and jumping into the enemy trench. The bombardment hadn't killed many Chinese nor damaged the defences, but it did force them to cower in their pits and so they weren't formed into any sort of organised defence when the Australians got amongst them. 11 platoon bayoneted, grenaded and fired onto the defenders. The ferocity of the attack, combined with the Chinese machine gunners' inability to bring their guns onto the attackers, soon had the Chinese troops falling back in disarray. When Clark, the platoon commander, managed to lob a grenade into the enemy command post, killing all inside, the spirit of the Chinese was shattered and they bolted. During the pursuit, Clark was carrying an American burp gun that he had, shall we say, acquired? The gun jammed on him and he was unable to clear it, so he tossed it aside pulled his walking cane from his pack and led his troops on, armed with only a cane. Soldiers are strange, strange people. Corporal John Black was leading his section forward when he was wounded by a Chinese anti-tank grenade. He got up, dusted himself off and got back into the lead of his section, at which point he was wounded again. He decided he was still in pretty good nick, all things considered, and so he got up and led his troops forward again refusing to be evacuated until the attack was complete. It was through the efforts of men like these that uniform was taken, but it still wasn't secure. Seeing enemy troops on a bit of a knoll to the south, Clark led 11 platoon in one more push to seize this point as well. Fortunately, he didn't have to do it all alone, as 12 platoon was at that very moment attacking the same feature from the south. 12 joined up with 11 which by now was down to about half strength and just about knackered. Together they took this feature and by 4pm, D Company had captured and secured uniform. But by now Hassett knew that D Company was just about buggered and that no more could be expected of them. He described D Company's effort as quite magnificent and ordered Young to consolidate his position and prepare for another company to move through for the next stage. D Company's attack on the 5th of October had killed 68 Chinese, captured 30 and wounded an untold number for the loss of 2 killed and 14 wounded. Jim Young and Lieutenant Clark were both awarded the Military Cross for their command during the fighting and Corporal Black was awarded the Military Medal. So remember B Company? They'd taken that right turn and secured the northern flank, which wasn't really what they had been ordered to do. With D Company just about done in, Hassett sent an order to Nichols to get his company prepared to advance through D Company and continue the attack on Hill 317. But the order was met with some confusion, and Nichols also sounded like he was just about done in. Hassett recognised that B Company, which in fairness had been on the move constantly for quite a few days, was just as exhausted as D Company. He knew that when men had reached the limits of their endurance, they did things that didn't make sense or didn't act effectively. The unplanned move to the north, and Nichols' confusion at his orders, told Hassett all he needed to know. C Company, although having provided assistance in the capture of Hill 355 on the 4th of October, had spent the 5th resting as battalion reserve. Major Gurkey had spent the day shadowing Hassett at battalion headquarters, 
and so he was fully aware of the operational situation. The order to continue the advance was given to Gurkey, and Nichols was ordered to send one platoon to bolster D Company's numbers. Six platoons were sent over to join Young, and they were put to work helping to clear the casualties of D Company and to escort prisoners. D Company set about reorganising the old Chinese defences so that they were able to support C Company's advance. The remainder of B Company was brought forward and ordered to dig in on Victor Feature. Gurkey had by this time got C Company organised and they began their move. C Company's plan was to attack Tango Feature with one platoon and then use it as the forming up point for the other two platoons for the final assault on Hill 317, which we'll get to in a moment. Because while all this was happening, Remember that the Fusiliers were attacking from the south towards Hill 217. Unfortunately, their advance hadn't gone as well as three RARs. They had pushed forward on a two-axis front and encountered successive Chinese positions. Each encounter led to fierce fighting, resulting in mounting casualties amongst the Fusiliers. Many platoon commanders were hit and then platoon sergeants were lost. Their proximity to the enemy meant that effective supporting fire couldn't be brought to bear and at one point, machine gun fire from the Borders and Shropshires was fired into the Fusiliers. By around midday, Y Company had pushed to about 1,000 metres from Hill 217. Z Company had crested the eastern side of the spur about 400 metres from Hill 217. The troops pushed on, and about an hour later, Z Company had broken into the Chinese position, and Y Company held a position 300 metres south but the Fusiliers had expended a lot of ammunition and suffered heavy casualties in the taking of Hill 217. They tried to consolidate the position, but the entire time they were under constant machine gun fire from the Chinese on higher ground to the north. The Chinese battalion in the Mariangsan area had been reinforced and by late afternoon they had launched a strong counterattack. Being at about half strength at this stage and low on ammunition, the Fusiliers were unable to hold off the attack. By nightfall, they had fallen back to where they had started the day, with one company holding onto the southern edge of the spur, about a thousand metres south of Hill 217. Back with 3 RAR, Gurgi quickly got C Company on the move and formed up in the valley between B Company in the north and D Company in the south. Hassett ordered 15 minutes of supporting artillery to be launched against Tango Feature. The final approach would be covered by tanks and machine guns. An airstrike, which was put in against a position just to the west of Hill 317, noticed a large group of Chinese troops heading north. The divisional artillery was soon dropping shells on these men. As C Company moved forward, they came across the debris from the earlier fighting. Lieutenant Pears, in charge of 7 Platoon, recalled, The ground was strewn with remnants and the haze of battle, and there was an overpowering stench of gunpowder and white phosphorus. Worse than all that was the sight of their mates in B and D Companies. They were dirty, tired and missing quite a few of their number. It must have been a bit unsettling for the C Company lads to know that it was now their turn and chances are they'd be looking the same in the not too distant future. Jim Young met up with Gurky as he approached D Company and conducted a quick battlefield handover, pointing out the general direction of Tango. C Company faced an advance of about 700 metres just to get to the forward slope. The seizure of Tango was given to Lieutenant McWilliams' 8 platoon. To the cheers of their D Company mates, 8 platoons set off. When they arrived at Tango, they found most of the Chinese defenders either dead, wounded or dazed from the bombardment. McWilliams took 7 prisoners and consolidated the position to provide support to 7 and 9 platoons as they attacked the main objective. With Tango now secure, Hassett switched the supporting fire onto Hill 317, 
hoping to keep the Chinese in their bunkers while C Company advanced the final 500 metres. The final approach to Hill 317 was devoid of any real cover and was incredibly steep. At one point, the men had to advance on hands and knees. 7 Platoon was leading, and when Lieutenant Pears came over the edge of the summit, he expected to be met with a hail of bullets. But nothing happened. The position had been abandoned, and a few straggling Chinese troops could be seen hightailing it to the north. The rest of the company came onto the summit and took possession, witnessing the Fusiliers' desperate attempt to take Hill 217. Hassett set about reorganising his battalion. 8 Platoon went forward from Tango to rejoin the rest of C Company, and D Company moved on to Tango. But the Chinese weren't going to let the Australians have Hill 317 without a few parting shots. Quite a few, actually. They began pouring water and artillery fire into their recently vacated positions. C Company worked hard to prepare the position for a Chinese counterattack, which was no easy feat. The position had been developed to face an attack from the south, and all the trenches were facing the wrong direction. The ground was rocky, and so preparing all-round defences while under heavy fire was extremely difficult. At this point, A Company was still at a spot immediately below Hill 317, after its diversionary attack. To strengthen C Company's position, Hassett ordered A to send assistance to the summit. Shelton sent two platoon, and then ordered his other two platoons to return to Hill 199 around battalion headquarters. So on the night of the 5th and 6th of October, Hill 317 was in Australian hands, and although under heavy fire, they were reasonably secure. The Fusiliers had been repulsed from Hill 217, but their attack had tied up nearly an entire battalion, which no doubt assisted 3RAR in their attack. But Hill 217, Sierra Feature and The Hinge would need to be taken before the entire area could be called secure. And so, it would all be on again the following day. And that, my friends, is what we will cover in the next episode. I'll catch you then.